now there is obviously absolutely no need for me to introduce such a very beloved and very distinguished guest as the Bushman Club has this evening. May I just say on behalf of you all how very glad we are that Bishop Anthony Bloom is here tonight and he will be speaking on the religion of the Russian people. Bishop Anthony. I should like, first of all, to make clear what my subject is supposed to be. The religion of the Russian people, as a phrase, can be understood either as the religion of the Russians, or, as I'm going to use it, as the religion of the Russian folk. It is not quite folk religion, because it is genuinely Christian, as I will try to show. But what I want to underline are the characteristics which Christianity has possessed, and I believe still possesses, in the religion and in the experience of the ordinary, uneducated classes of society. This subject is of particular interest, I believe, in our epoch, because the great majority of the believers in Soviet Russia belong now to the people. The great majority of the believers which frequent churches in the Soviet Union are workmen and working class people, also people who belong to the agricultural world. And so, the characteristics which we may be able to elicit tonight and so many other things, which obviously I will not be able to say, may help us discover a world which is not the orthodox world to which we are accustomed in its form and in expression, because orthodoxy, as we know it, a growth is the orthodoxy of the thinking, educated classes of society primarily. It is not, uh, I will make use for um, the talk I'm giving now of a most remarkable series of two articles written <coughs> about 12, 13 years ago by Professor Pierre Pascal who was then a lecturer at the University of Paris and is now professor of Russian language and Russian culture at the Sorbonne. He is one of those who has studied <coughs> Russia on the spot, as it were, who has spent many years in the country before the revolution, who has spent most of the revolutionary years in Moscow and has had access to such documents which were not available to the scholar before. I will intersperse his remarks by a certain number of commentaries so as to make this talk a little bit mine, but I would like you to assume that all the knowledge is his and all the mistakes and rash conclusions belong to me. When uh, we look at the past of any country and on the way in which Christianity has been implanted in it, it is not enough to trace, as it were, the religious pedigree of the country. It is not enough to say, in a more or less generalizing way, that Russia received its faith from Byzantium, or if you prefer more precisely, from Byzantium originally, by the Slavonic countries of the south, particularly Bulgaria, partly Poland, and also had access to Christianity to the extent to which it existed then in the north, <coughs> from northern countries. It is not enough because every nation received the same gospel and yet acquired a Christian physiognomy, 
which is peculiar to this nation. This is a point which was brought out very clearly and with admirable depth already in the 11th century by the Russian chronicler Nestor. In one of his writings, in his chronicles, he says that every nation is supposed to receive the gift of the faith of Christ and to express it in a way which is unique. Because in the same way in which every human person is unique and unrepeatable, is unlike any other person, is irreplaceable, exactly in the same way every nation which is made of the totality of human persons that belong to the same soil, to the same background, who are of the same stock, have got common qualities, have got common qualities that allow or force it to express its faith in ways which are unique. And in the conception of Nestor, this was providential and infinitely precious because it is only the totality of the persons that could be a revelation of what Christianity, the life of God in people, can be because none, not one person or any group of persons can express it fully and also that on another level it is only the totality of the nations of the world which will be able to bring out the infinitely complex and rich uh, heritage of Christianity. This does not mean that Christianity changes. The word of God that resound in the scriptures remains the same. The faith remains the same. The witness remains basically the same. And yet, nuances are introduced because the same melody received in the heart of people is brought out with new voices and in a new form. <coughs> so, apparently, even in the eyes of a man who lived so long before us, we can expect that Russian Christianity, or even Russian Orthodoxy as contrasted with from the Orthodoxy of other countries, will have its own peculiar aspects. Now, there is more to it. There is more to it because in Russia, a phenomenon has taken place, which we find also in all the countries in the West, as uh, well as in Russia, but which in Russia has uh, had an acuteness and in depth, perhaps unequaled in the West. The rift, the separation between the two classes of a society, the educated classes, consists en bloc, and the non-educated classes, <coughs> on the other hand. In the West, the process has been more or less a natural process. The educated classes have taken up the faith, pondered over it, expressed it in form, in words, which were no longer accessible to the simple folk, which had, on the one hand, to learn from uh, their betters, if betters there are, but also who had to live a faith to a certain extent divorced from the thinking of another group of the same nation. In Russia, the same process, the same natural segregation took place, but it was made infinitely more acute by the will of Peter the Great, who introduced a break in Russian society and divided it violently into two unequal blocks. On one hand, <coughs> a smaller group of people who received an enforced Western education from whose consciousness, habits, and often souls were eradicated the common 
Russian characteristics and another mass of people which remained what it was, which at that moment was not the object of this reform and this work of education, and which was used to, as building material for the new Russia which Peter the Great had decided to build. And the result was that on the one hand, we possessed a society of highly educated, cultured, refined people, and on the other hand, a mass of people who had received in times past their original faith, who were living by it, but who could receive no leave from those who should have been their leaders because they had been separated too violently and the gap was too vast. And when I say that the gap was too vast, it was not only a question of lack of culture and knowledge on the part of the less educated classes, it was also the fact that the two classes spoke different languages. Uh, the elite spoke French, English, or German. The mass spoke Russian. And we find in the 18th and 19th century that the Russian spoken by the whole nation had become, to a great extent, a foreign language to, for those who were supposed to be the guides into culture, into spirituality, and into political consciousness of the masses. We find in so many <coughs> works of literature striking examples of it, and if you glance through War and Peace by Tolstoy, you will see that the majority of the dialogues are written in French or in German, and only the basic text, which is the text of Tolstoy himself, is written in Russian. And this was true for the society which it uh, tried to express. People used foreign languages as their own, and the language of the people was a foreign language to them. It is not surprising, therefore, that having gone away from them, from the point of view of culture, having learned a new language, having received and accepted a Western form of life, outwardly and inwardly, they had very little to convey and could receive very little from the mass. This is certainly not completely true, and examples and exceptions are many, but on the whole, this is, I believe, a more or less adequate description. Yet, in the course of the 19th century, this gap began to um, lessen itself. There was a tendency for the elite to try and meet the masses of the people. Pushkin and the following writers began to coin a language which was purely Russian, which was worthy of a great nation, and which could compete on terms of equality with the foreign languages used by the more educated people. There was no need anymore for people to turn to foreign languages to be able to speak good languages uh, to express complex and rich thoughts and experience. Now they could turn to their own great writers and learn from them to speak their own language, which in a certain sense did not exist before. Certainly not to express those complex uh, theological, philosophical, or cultural values which were to be expressed in order to feed intellectually and morally this society. <coughs> the same process continued also in the 20th century. A great role was played in this rapprochement between the masses, I believe, by the various forms of enlightenment and even of the revolutionary movement of those idealists 
who naively, candidly decided to go into the masses and to bring them luck because they had received their knowledge and their culture from the West and now they were groping in the dark trying to rediscover a way of speaking to those people who were their flesh and blood and yet who had become so profoundly alien to them. A certain number of men also began to think in Russian and to express in their writings the thought and religious experience of the Russian people. Yet when we think of certain of their names, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, the Slavophiles, when we think also <coughs> of men like uh, the Russian symbolist, Merishkovsky, um, uh, Rodner, and others, we see that on the one hand, this was a rapprochement, on the other hand, it was a new culture that began to grow out of the genuine Russian soil together with uh, Western culture, because those men whom I have mentioned were too gifted, too talented, had too much of a personality to do only translation work, to be just go-between, to be nothing but a link between these two worlds. They belong to the one completely, they learned a great deal about the other, but what the expression created was something new again, a great of great value, and yet not simply a translation for the use of uh, westernized Russians of what was the thought, the experience, and the life of the others. And so, when we look at this uh, these 200 years, perhaps, of Russian, or 300 years of Russian history, beginning with Peter the Great and ending uh, with the revolution, we see that in the church, in uh, cultural life, in the life of the nation, there were two realities. One that was Russian by blood and <coughs> uh, flesh, <coughs> yet was aiming at being Western, and the other one, which was of the same human stock, and yet was separated from the elite by the language, by the past, by 300 years of absolutely different life. What I want to speak about uh, is the is Christianity as we can discover it, perceive it, in these classes of society which were not Western. You know very well, and everyone knows what the elite has produced in this sense. The names of Khamirkov, <coughs> of Samarin, of Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, of Mirishkovsky and Rosner, and so many others, not to speak of more modern men like Berdyal, Bulgakov, Frank, Tvorsky, uh, etc., are very well known in the West. What is less known and much less accessible, even to the Russian reader, is the life of this unknown quantity, which was practically the totality of the nation, if we speak in terms of numbers. It has become, as I have said in the beginning, particularly interesting, because when you go to Russia, after an experience of Western Orthodox life, you discover a world of Christianity which is extremely fuzzy. You may emotionally be akin to it. You may be capable of perceiving what it has got to say and what it possesses within its experience. And yet, when you look at congregations, when you preach, when you pray with the same people, you see that it is another world and a world which you do not know. I should perhaps, instead of saying you do not know, say I do not know, but ultimately it amounts to the same, because all of us, priests, bishops, and uh, lay people who have been brought up 
for the great start of their lives in the West had never been confronted with Christianity as we see it then. And it is not enough to say it is something overwhelming. It is not only overwhelming. It is puzzling and there must be a key to it. I suppose that those of an older generation, the few who had any understanding of the, the, the Russian thought before the revolution, are more capable than we are to discover this <coughs> mass of people to unfold its mystery and to understand it. But this is certainly not the case of the people who are, say, below 45 or 50, and it is certainly not the case of any Westerner going to Russia, even if he is profoundly acquainted with orthodoxy, as it appears in Western churches, in theological writings, or in the philosophical writings of the, uh, our great professors of the last century. So, I wish to say something about these people, and obviously, from what I have said, it is an attempt not to teach anyone, but to understand something in order to find a point of contact, which I believe ultimately is a difficult problem. Now, to make it <coughs> simpler, because the problem is extremely vast and complex, I think we should limit ourselves both in space and in time uh, for this study. On one hand, in time, I would like to consider the situation of the faith of the Russian people within the last hundred years before the revolution and not in the course of all its history, although I would like to say a word about its beginning, which gives a character to what ensues. And on the other hand, I don't think it's of any practical value to consider the problem in all the places of our Russian immensity, but I would like to take up as a subject what one calls in Russian Vilika Russia, Great Russia, that part, that northern part of Russia, which is more accessible uh, <coughs> from the point of view of existing literature. Before we come to this, I think it is fair to ask ourselves what our sources of information can be. Obviously, the best, yet the most controversial, because it is so subjective and so difficult to weigh up, is uh, a personal, deep knowledge of the Russian thought. It is obvious that this would be the best, and it's also obvious that it is hardly possible to approach the problem from this angle. Because anyone who will try to approach it this way will have to reckon with <coughs> the amount of information he possesses himself, and anyone listening to him or reading his works will have make, to make allowances and great allowances indeed, for the subjective uh, appreciation of factors. So although this is the richest and the most obvious way in which one can approach the problem, it is not the most reliable way. There are, secondly, a certain number of literary sources. There are a certain number of writings which empty from the people itself. Of course, you do not find any attempt made by the people to characterize itself in order to be understood. But when you take writings <coughs> which originate in the people, you will quite easily discern in what is said in the way in which things are expressed, 
in the surprise which is expressed by the writer when he's confronted with this and that, with in all his reactions, a good uh, material for the understanding of people. You know, um, probably all or the great majority of you know, um, a book <coughs> which is called The Pilgrim, The Way of the Pilgrim. It's the story of a man who um, started on a lifelong pilgrimage in Russia and whose whole religious experience was centered on the use of Jesus Christ. Apart from the characteristics which we can derive about the pilgrim, the, <coughs> the simple man who sets out to walk and go from place to place in an act of veneration for all the shrines and the, all the holy places of Russia, apart from the data on his mentality, which we find here and there, we also find innumerable details about the people he meets, whole conversations, descriptions of places and of uh, surroundings. And this, of course, is one of the best sources for our information. Another book, which is available in French and uh, in Russian translation, however strange it is, is a book written originally in Russian and called in French Souvenir d'un missionnaire de Sibérie, uh, Memoirs of uh, Reminiscences of a Siberian Missionary. Uh, Pierre Pascal discovered this book in the course of the revolution in one of uh, the stocks of Russian archives in one of the libraries, either of Moscow or Leningrad, I can't remember. He had no choice. He had rather um, a choice between either copying it out or else getting a translation. And so he found, as he was aiming at work in France, that the simplest thing was to settle down and translate it. So he brought into the West a translation of a book that does not exist in its Russian original in any published form. The translation which he has made uh, is extremely accurate and precise, and it is so close to the text that it proved possible to retranslate it into Russian and to get a quite genuine Russian language flavored with the spirit and the forms of speech of the milieu in which it originated. It was printed a few years ago by, uh, in uh, the messenger, in the magazine of the Russian student Christian movement, uh, not completely, I think. Again, in this book, we find a man who was originally a peasant little boy, who became a priest, who remained completely a man of the from the people, and who meets people without end. He began as a missionary in the Altai, and then quite soon he became a prison chaplain in <coughs> uh, two or three place, places, on the Baikal, Nierchens, and other places. And there, with absolute simplicity, without any ambiguity, without uh, launching his words, he just tells one after the other of meeting with individual people, who they were, what they had done, why they were in prison, uh, what their background was, how their conversation ran, and what happened as a result of their meeting. This is, again, a very precious source of information. A source of information which appears to be very precious at first, but is much less precious uh, when we look at it at closer quarter, are the studies made by scientists. Because what they are after are uh, hard and precise facts, and um, they work hard to collect all the superstitions, all the strange things 
one could still find in the people because what they expected and what they because they expected and this of course happens gradually these superstitions die out these uh, beliefs die out and it was extremely important for them to collect them as soon as possible as long as they did the result is that the picture which you get from such scientific works is one of a superstitious nation with very little Christianity in it, simply because the common basis of Christianity and all that was expected to survive, to continue, and to develop was left aside as not interesting. It was the, the ephemeral, the transient, that was the object of their interest. Much more interesting are the works of people like Maxima, who collected curious stories and curious things. He has produced a thick and extremely entertaining book in its own way called um, The Powers of Darkness, and another one, um, Wandering Russia. And apart from him, of course, the writings of a man like Dostoevsky, who certainly was not a man of this kind of class, but who spent enough time with people of this milieu and had an immense understanding of them. Also, other writers like Gorky, like Karelianka, like um, Gliabustiansky. The trouble with the great writers is something which I have already mentioned. The more they have talent, the less they are reliable quite often as to the photographic truth concerning what they are speaking about. And the lesser writings, like Liskov, for instance, uh, quite often are more interesting from this point of view because they do not aim at embroidering on a theme, they just give you in a vision what they have seen or perceived. The same is true for certain of the writings of Karalienka. And I'm sorry if my literary judgments um, prove to be completely wrong when I say that there are lesser writers, but I take responsibility for what I have said. Something also which is of interest in this effort to discover the soul of the Russian people are the lives of saints. Now, the lives of saints can be treated from a variety of points of view. One of our greatest historians, Kluchevsky, made an immense study of lives of saints, after which he put them aside and said that they are no good for real historical information. He was followed uh, later by a man called Kedlubovsky, who approached the lives of saints from a quite different point of view and discovered what Kluchevsky was never able to discover in them because he looked at them from the wrong angle. He assumed that in every life of saints there is some sort of general theme which is a type. Every saint must be saintly in a certain number of ways, which will repeat themselves uh, from generation to generation and from century to century. Also, the different types of holiness, monastic, episcopal, priestly, and so on, have got a certain number of characteristics. But this is the least interesting part of the life when you approach them in order to discover either an epoch or a social group. What is interesting are the details which are added on this general theme. The scheme may repeat itself, and from the point of view of the historian who wishes to form an opinion about how and when and where the saint lived and the details of his life, the life may be of little interest. But from the point of view of one who is not interested in the same primarily, but in all the rest, the life is extremely interesting 
because it is written or spoken by people who um, were an expression of their time and of their own milieu. One <coughs> example uh, which could be given, which is not the life of a saint, but which is in profoundly interesting to the, for the understanding of the fate of the Russian people uh, in its own time, is the life of the priest Avakum. Avakum wrote his own life. And here we find a man who belonged completely to the people, who at the same time was an educated man, a man of immense faith and integrity, and who, while he describes his life, pronounces, passes judgments, uh, describes things, reacts to things in a way which unfolds before us the soul of the Russians of his time. Now, I would like to turn to <coughs> another point. And before I turn to this point, I would like to make a parenthesis. Uh, the subject, as, um, when I try to approach it, appeared to me extremely complex, and I thought that I am not in a position to summarize what I have got to say, because it would be too condensed to be intelligible. And so I have decided to speak as I have done now, to introduce you into the subject, and now, instead of taking the whole problem, which uh, is the fate of the Russian people, I would like to take just one or three or four questions that could be uh, the subject of the whole uh, discourse. If we approach the, the religious life of the Russian people, I think we can divide it, of course, artificially, into three groups of things. The faith of the people, <coughs> the worship of the people, and the life of the people. And what I want to say is very little, comparatively now, on the faith of the Russian people, examined from one point of view. All those who have studied the faith of the Russian people uh, scientifically have come, I believe, very rashly to the conclusion that the Russian people was a nation of a divided heart, of a divided mind, of divided religious <coughs> allegiance. On the one hand, uh, we are told, outwardly, they appear to be a very devout, perhaps a mystical, perhaps an ecstatic um, nation of Christians. On the other hand, if you only scratch a little bit under the surface, you discover that they are pure pagans. Now, is this true? Facts that seem to uh, support this assertion are many. It's only the interpretation of these facts that I think should be more cautious than it has been. <coughs> when we turn to the past, we discover that superstitions were attacked and condemned as diabolical, um, so <coughs> far back as the 15th and particularly the uh, 16th century. The great uh, Russian synod of called Stadlach in 1551, condemns diabolical games, diabolical dances, diabolical uh, rites, um, <coughs> etc. On the other hand, we know that even very late, even before the revolution, and even now, certain feasts have been kept. There are feasts of the spring, there are songs and dances, which are almost ritual songs and ritual dances in the sense that they repeat themselves from year to year and from place to place. Uh, we also uh, know that in villages, 
and not only in the death of Siberia, but in many places of European Russia, feasts were organized to sing the glory of uh, the sun, of life, of the fertile ground. The stuff of this world happens to enter into indissoluble contact with the Godhead, remains itself and begins to shine with a new light. That in the ascension of the Lord Christ, the same earth out of which man is taken ascends to the throne of God and sits on the right hand of the Father. We have the same attitude to the created, inert in our eyes, but in life in the eyes of God, when we speak of the sacraments, and we do believe that the blessing of God makes matter, the ordinary matter of our life, a real uh, vehicle of divine grace or of divinity. This faith that the waters of baptism are the waters of Jordan, sanctified forever by the contact of Christ, God and man, and that they convey actively, really, a grace which cannot be conveyed differently, that this bread and this wine are Christ, that everything which God touches can be integrated into a kingdom where there is neither matter nor spirit, but in which everything which is material is pervaded and filled with presence divine. This faith is at the background of what appears to us so often as an act of superstition, a lack of enlightenment. Thanks be to God, in that respect, Orthodoxy has not been given the enlightenment of the upper classes of the Russian society. Well, I think that this is all I am capable of saying in the time which <coughs> I have got. I better stop here. I hope, in spite of the scarcity of what I have said, that it will have given you a thought that there is here a problem, that there is something one can study, that those of you who are students of Russian problems can make a real contribution to the understanding of Russia, past, present, and future, by turning to a religious reality which is not the reality easily captured in books and uh, lectures, but which lies silent, dormant, and yet so full of life and power because it has been able to withstand all the pressure of persecution, of evil, of the destructive forces of its world, while the rest has wavered. As I have said, there are several other aspects one could consider. I have given you this one because I believe it is perhaps the more frightening, the more characteristic, and the more shocking. And I apologize that my introduction has been much longer than my subject, but I have been, uh, well, honestly, I have been carried away by something that interests me. problems 
representation of the man, the way in which he is committed, the way in which he is inserted in a tragic period of history, makes the situation profoundly different and does not affect his faith, but affects the man so profoundly that no comparison can be uh, fairly drawn between the two people of two such different epochs. I'm not a historian, therefore uh, my statement can be contradicted, probably, but it is just the impression I have from the little knowledge I have of history. One of the characteristics of the Russian folks' religion was the sense, which I have not mentioned, that all things ultimately are under the power of God. And this led to something which quite often is uh, understood as fatalism <coughs> by another observer, and which in reality was a pure and complete act of faith. God is the Lord, ultimately. God is the Lord of history. God is the Lord of my life. God is the Lord of all things. And this is not fatalism, but simply a life, intelligent, courageous, and active cooperation with God. I think that uh, what happened to this priest who kissed the man <coughs> on the mouth is an expression of this complete certitude and simplicity. It is more difficult to um, comment on the good old woman who went to Bali because there are many reasons why someone can possess such simplicity. When you don't know that Bari is beyond the next uh, town, it's easier to set out to reach it. Uh, and the knowledge of geography and dangers make things quite often more difficult to achieve and require uh, perhaps not a greater faith, but <coughs> more thinking. I think this is really all I can say, because what you said about the saint again shows a great simplicity of faith, but does not show, even on purely the clerical standards, which are not very high indeed, um, a great enlightenment. Because if our faith was based on that kind of certitude, it would never conquer any inch of the world. But in the way of simplicity, if I may quote just one example taken from the people, uh, I remember a conversation between a priest, his parishioners, that uh, was reported to the early years of the revolution. Uh, a priest, for some reason, whether he was terrified or whether he was honestly convinced, gathered his parishioners and said, uh, my dear brethren, I have been a liar. There is no God. And then he made a discourse to that effect. And when he had finished, one of his parishioners came out and said, Father, do you mean that you have lied to us 30 years on end? Yes, said the good man, I'm sorry, I'm ashamed that I have lied. And so the man turned to the other villagers and said, look at him. He has lied for 30 years and he expects us to believe him today. <laughs> well, that is common sense and direct. Some of the religious songs or the sort of poetry that was uh, repeated and handed over from one to another had a very simple origin. It's a creation of, well, minstrels of a given epoch drawing on the knowledge of experience and emotions of the people <coughs> who lived 
problem. But the great many have an extremely complex uh, history. And both the theme and the way in which it is treated and the concrete assertions may be traced back far beyond Byzantium and far beyond uh, the epoch to which they apparently belong when we judge them from the point of view of language. We find Manichaean influences, we find influences of early Gnostics in things which uh, seemingly, when you read the text, when you analyze the grammar or the form, are Russian Middle Ages. And so, if we took those texts and said, this is what people thought, we would probably be mistaken. Um, everything that <coughs> circulates in the people is not always popular literature. Uh, the same is true for um, the stats, for the various tales. The same is true <coughs> for songs. They have quite often a, a very ancient background, even in Greek mythology. And so, uh, when we use them to ascertain the fate, fate of Russia in a given period in which they were probably composed, we must be terribly careful about it. If there are no more questions or contributions, we'll bring the official part of the, the meeting to a close. We can, of course, go on discussing, you know, see downstairs. And so I would very, very much like to thank Bishop Anthony for a profoundly interesting uh, and deeply valuable talk for a talk on this subject. It's very, very rarely to be heard, and as you realize yourself from the sources that uh, Bishop Anthony quoted, uh, very difficult to read anything on. And it is quite true that, of course, especially in the West, um, Western thinking on the subject of Russian Orthodoxy, is its direct experience is through uh, meetings and contact with the uh, great representatives of Russian Orthodox thought among the intelligentsia, among the people who founded, uh, well, who found mainly in Paris, uh, people around the Jai, like the Jai, and others. And here, of course, it is a profoundly important and fascinating subject, and one which has to be really uh, studied and known for us to understand the enormous work of spiritual experience and faith, which is the Christian faith of the Russian people in Russia today. So may I express your deepest thanks to Bishop Anthony for his talk this evening. This episode of the Pushkin House podcast was recorded live at Pushkin House in Lambrook Grove in 1961 and was edited and produced at Pushkin House by me, Rafi Haid. Our thanks to Nastya Karol and Andrei Levitsky for researching and digitizing the real-to-real -real audio footage. For more archived material and new content from the UK's oldest independent Russian cultural center, please subscribe to our podcast and check out our blog and YouTube channel. Thanks for listening and happy Easter. Christos Vaskios.